Hello and welcome to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan and on the other line, the champ is here. It's Andy Greenwald! Look in the mirror. Uh, only Your only opponent is yourself. Andy, welcome to this post-Thanksgiving apocalypse. We're going to be talking a little bit today about the movie Creed, which is dope. We're also going to talk about Leftovers and Homeland, but we're going to start it off a little in and out. Let's talk about this Captain America Civil War trailer. Man. I, mean, I got a lot of morning zoo voices today. What's up with I me? Like Culture doesn't sleep, Chris. <laughs> no, I it doesn't. I was, I was visiting the in-laws, you know? Just preparing some sides. Yeah. Got to prepare some sides. Sides are the important part. Oh, I thought you meant preparing some sides like you were reading lines that you were going to deliver a monologue. Like, I love when we drop the This is Alec Baldwin's speech from Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. My in-laws love that. Um, no, Marvel dropped another big trailer for us, so we have to we have to chop it up whether whether we're in or out. So I want to ask you, Chris. I'll ask you first. Are you in or out? Out. Captain America: Civil War. I'm out. Here's why. I'm sure it's going to be like just the same kind of B minus Marvel movie that like we have come to love and respect. But uh, interesting choice by Marvel. And I don't know if it was intentional. I assume everything's intentional. But here's what I think is interesting. They have decided to get dark at yes. the same time as DC comes. Yes. And it's just an interesting because like the whole point of Marvel to me was always it had like a kind of sunny disposition. Ultimately, everything was OK. There aren't really any like evil bad guys like Joker. It's always just like, oh, yeah, like uh, Josh Brolin sitting on the moon or whatever is going on. Right. Thanos. Or, or James Spader. <laughs> what if it was what if the actual villain of Marvel was Josh Brolin? <laughs> what if the actual villain was James Brolin? <laughs> no, like, he's not evil. But like, I mean, Josh Brolin sitting on the moon, but just being Josh Brolin and being like, have you thought about investing? Investing in tech stocks because during wall street two money never sleeps i became a real trader which brolin by the way josh brolin, i know i didn't mean which literally whether <laughs> his father is fine his father is just having a wonderful time in uh in catalina island with barbara no i meant like which josh brolin because the man is he's, he's like an american chameleon i which brolin i think uh from the underseen film labor day <laughs> Yeah, I think the one that like squeezes peaches with Kate Winslet is definitely the biggest threat to the multiverse. Uh, my point is that Marvel doesn't really have like a big bad that that, that scares people. It keeps people awake, like Joker. Uh, and for the most part, it was about like good times, banter, you know, like a little bit of anxiety with the Hulk. But for the most part, like everything always works out in Marvel movies. And now, you know, just as DC is coming with Batman versus Superman yeah. uh, and uh, Suicide Squad and everything else, Marvel's like, no, now we have. Now we have like depth and darkness and internal conflict and, and moral questions about superheroes. So I'm not out based on the product itself. I'm out on the uh, Marvel using its sort of uh, losing its sort of differentiation in the in the superhero game. Uh, here's I, I'm I'm gonna I, I think I agree with you, but I'm gonna play devil's advocate for a minute here and say I'm playing devil's advocate. You're you're, you're you have to be now you you're gonna be the guy who's like I I love comics. <laughs> Yeah, but I agree with you about this. Okay. I, I'm, I, I, I embrace the devil, but we have to have, I feel like, you know, a little conflict, it, it sells in movies. That's true. It sells on podcasts, too. So it, it certainly does sell podcasts. It just moves them. So this is our, our dawn of justice here. I think that one thing behind this is they are definitely trying to compete in the trailer game. With yes. DC, right. Yeah, so yeah. they're releasing this very early. And they're definitely trying to raise the stakes because we're coming off of a summer where Age of Ultron, in some degree, disappointed. It certainly disappointed, I felt like, artistically, which people, is a ridiculous thing It to disappointed say. people who, who like movies that are comprehensible, yeah. It disappointed <laughs> people who like to see movies in May and remember them in June. <laughs> All those people were yeah. very disappointed. Yeah. Um, it also, the, last, the last, uh, last little bit of Marvel magic in our mouths was Ant-Man, which was a light trifle. Mm -hmm. So that are, the, the fact that Ant-Man And amused Boosh, that you so could say. It, it, well, yeah, just sort of like a, a granita that sort of really just cleansed the palate, you know? Something like a, some shaved ice. I think that, that uh, if that's the last taste that left in our mouth, they want to they bring a, a heavier entree in the winter season. Um, but I totally agree with you. I just saw, and we're going to get to this in a minute, I just went to the movies today because that's what I do now in my fun employment. <laughs> And I saw a trailer for, for Batman v Superman, and it made me furious all over again because it looks like the stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and it bummed me out that it was the same idea, that like the only thing left for, it just feels very like end times and, and meta in a way that these shouldn't, that the only thing left for these movies to do is just to punch each other in the face now. Shout out to DC though, because I left Man of, uh, what was the, the last Superman called? Man of Steel? Yeah. Yeah, or whatever it was called. I walked out of that movie being like, I hope I get hit by a bus. 
and it's pretty easy to get hit by a bus in Los Angeles. Yeah. And they don't really care about anybody or any car. And I was like, man, I, I hope it ends right now because that was the stupidest piece of shit I've ever seen. And I'm still like, what's up, Batman? <laughs> Affleck! <laughs> For the record, I am talking to my, my friend and podcast co-host who who IM'd me and oh no they didn't link to a picture of Ben <laughs> Affleck, Affleck is a legend right now a- Affleck is is like the, the red carpet to Cooperstown is being rolled out for Affleck there was a picture of him in the Daily Mail this week of him wearing like uh, basically like what would happen to his the town character if he had just stayed in Boston no what would happen to his Goodwill Hunting character if he was just like a 45 year old man still like overseeing construction sites yeah. and he was carrying a Gatorade and a pack of menthols because gods walk among us. <laughs> and, you, and you texted me that at 1 a.m. Why is up. Affleck smoking menthols? What is going on? He wants to get that taste of Ant-Man out of his mouth. <laughs> he, he wants to cleanse the palate. Look, let's go back to this for a second. I, I think it was an... In, Civil War is this big... I'll, I'll do the comic book guy thing for a second, right? Civil War was a big turning point for Marvel Comics and comic industry in general. It was a giant event that people kind of cared about. It was, in essence, kind of stupid, but the idea was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the idea of it was that there was a superhero-related incident, that basically an explosion that killed a lot of people. And because of that, the government overreacted or reacted and demanded that everyone register if you have superpowers. And this led to a schism between those who believed you shouldn't have to register and those that believed that you should, okay. right? And so that is a rip from the headlines, do the law and order, bum bum thing uh, type of story that could play today, right? What was interesting about watching this trailer is that it revealed the inciting incident isn't a wormhole with, with space caterpillars flying into Earth, right? The inciting incident is that Captain America wants his buddy back from 70 years ago. Right. That's a weird choice to me. Because I like the idea I thought it was going to be, which was that like Captain America is this paragon of like you know, leftist Catalina wine mixer, American freedom. That's that your second work. Catalina reference today. You only get one more. It's called a callback. I don't know what <laughs> else you guys go out there. Um, that was interesting. The fact that he wants to just still pal around with Bucky, who became, by the way, a Soviet assassin, who I think perhaps does have a few things to answer. Yeah, for. I know. Seriously. They're like, well, Buck wasn't in his right mind, so he's just going to get off free. Yeah. Yo, he has a metal arm and shoots people. <laughs> from five football fields away. I feel like maybe it's a conversation you could have <laughs> instead of punching Tony Stark in the face. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, it just seemed, it seems a little, it seems a little busy. It seems a little busy to me. All right, so we're both out on that. Uh, we're going to leave it at that. We're not going to do any more in and outs today because we did want to really spend some time on uh, on Creed, which is a film uh came out this weekend to sensational box office uh, success, I think, given its expectations, which I don't know that people really thought it was gonna it was gonna drum up the business it did. Um, Certainly not the reviews that it did either. Yeah, and um, you know, like I gotta be honest, like I like Rocky, but like to me, when people would be like, "Oh, you're from Philly, you must love Rocky," it's like, well, it's like if you're from New York, do you love Saturday Night Live Fever? Like, I'm, it's good and it has like a lot of cool stuff, but you it, know, it's also like people are like, "You're from Philly, you must love cheesesteaks," when really you like roast pork Italians. Well, I actually prefer cheesesteaks, but that's a good. I I take your what? point. You like John, you just John like justice. you like <laughs> what? Batman v Superman. We finally got the conflict on this podcast. <laughs> Look, I just don't like broccoli, Rob. You don't like a spicy green? I no bitter. It's a bitter green. I wish people could see the sweater you're wearing because that is a spicy green. Um, I think that uh, I I just prefer che- cheesesteaks. I actually. And and with my man Ryan Coogler, in that I prefer chicken cheese steaks. That's now you're just talking crazy nonsense. Okay, so uh, this is this is good because I actually would say that Creed is more my Philly movie than uh you know than Rocky is. You know, it's a Philly that I recognize, and and I think the main reason for that is that instead of using the original Rocky as a template, Ryan Coogler used the <laughs> Rough Riders anthem video. <laughs> Which is, means a lot more. of hype Williams and little X nods going on in this. Um, you know, it's it's just it's interesting. Like people from outside of the city would probably be like, oh, Rocky's the quintessential Philadelphia movie. But to me, you know, something like, you know, Trading Places or 12 Monkeys is, has like more personal resonance. I'm, I don't know if you have particularly like, spe- specific Philly movies. Look, the main point I wanted to make, though, is just that like the, the, he really captured a city in this and this is sort of like the least important part of Creed, but he captured Philadelphia in this thing. 
I would throw Silver Linings Playbook up there as a Philly movie, and not only because yeah, diner. that's a good one. That's a good. That's a good. Good shout. Uh, when you said it captured a city, I think I agree. I love this movie. I agree with you. I think um, two main points. One, the uh, um, the John conversation. I feel like was it was just that <laughs> give was just, people a little context in case they haven't seen it. That was just servicey, like. <laughs> The one thing... Service to who? People who went and saw Hollertronics in 2003? People just need... People often ask what this term means. And I feel like Questlove has done some some of God's work helping to explain it like, yeah. via his prolific Instagram feed. But, you know, John is a word that, that, that we know. We use this word. It is part of our life. Yeah. The only other word that I remembered from growing up was chompies. And I feel like... Chompies. <laughs> I just remember a guy once telling me that hers crab chips should be eaten and he phrased it by telling me those chompies is plush <laughs> and who you told you that where was this guy you know what he was right <laughs> those chompies were crazy plush this is the problem with this conversation is that i feel like we're we're at once the two perfect people to talk about creed but the worst people because like you know a lot of this movie is set you know in frankfurt like off frankfurt avenue and in I guess, is it considered the Northeast when you go past Fishtown like that? There's a lot of Johnny Brenda's. There's a lot of Johnny Brenda's, but like when I was watching it, I was just like, oh yeah, Frankfurt. Like I remember beating those dudes' asses in Little League. (laughs) (laughs) Shots fired here. The the, the cool thing about the movie is that it was planted in two extreme parts of the city. It was in the south where Rocky lived and it was in, in North Philly. Yeah. Where the gym was, yeah, yeah. and where and where apparently Dragon is friends. <laughs> he is still just fashioning the opposite of H two O on a daily basis. He's just in a lab, just mixing mixing. No, I mean, there, there's just so many. There's a lot of really great Philly I, moments, even if they're a little on the nose. The cheesesteak scene is hilarious, but it's, I also want to say the the color palette of the movie got it because I was it's I was so home, perfect. It's so I was perfect. Home a little bit last week for Thanksgiving. Missed you. Um, Missed you. My out heart's there. breaking. No, seriously, it is. But. The thing that you know that that really killed me when I was I was driving in and driving down ninety five from from the north down into the city, and there's just a certain color palette. It's like the, it, it's it's those steely grays yeah. and blues and kind of washed out uh, leafless trees. That you know I lived there through many springs and summers too, but I don't remember it that way. I remember no, it, I, you just remember it from November to February. Yeah, from November to February in this kind of um, chemical wash, and it's not appealing really no. but it gets it's actually kind of i actually quick. like one of like the the it was like you know that drive in from uh philadelphia international airport where you see all the like gas refineries off the side the yeah and you, and you just kind of like get that feeling as soon as you land from wherever you're coming from like you're back in like you know you're you're back in the city you know and it's it's that it's the sky is the color of the concrete which is the color of the buildings and it's just this like very soviet gray at times even though it's a very architecturally beautiful city and it has a lot of like color and 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 like you said like it was it's a very green city but kugler really got that let's talk i want to talk a little bit about ryan kugler because um this movie has no business being this good like it just didn't have to be this good and from the first scene the fight in the juvie detention center and the camera work, um, his use of depth of field where he'll like have something going on in the foreground and then have something like whether it's Tess Thompson's character or Richie Keister, our boy from True Detective season two. Is that it? was him, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's great. He's in the background, the trainer of the other fighter. Um, there are these shots that are just like where he's layering story within the depth of field of a, of a frame. Um, he's got an incredibly like inventively moving camera. There was a couple of shots. Like there's a, there's a one taker. There's a one that's, that's from the first Philly fight that, that uh, Adonis fights in. That's very much like a, you know, a tribute to the raging bull tracking shot, but has its own vibe and its own feel. And it's just, this movie is so alive. That's the thing about it is it just feels so alive and it feels so lived in. These people feel real. Like Rocky has never felt this real. And the fact that they made, Adonis, an outsider to Philadelphia, I think really helped like his being like introduced to Philadelphia culture and Philadelphia sports. And, you know, I mean, it, it turns into a sports movie in the last third, but it's 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 just so vibrant. I, I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, it's it's probably the most entertaining movie I've seen this year. Let's talk about how hard it is for a film director to just get out of the way. Yeah. while Leaving his mark like that. Yeah. Because everything you're talking about 
suggests the. I mean, up until the point where it becomes a sports movie, which it does in really triumphant fashion and really embraces the cliches of the form in a way that I really appreciated. Yeah. But everything up to that, at, you're, you're, the movie you're describing, I, I that's the same movie I saw. I mean, it was very relaxed, lived in, comfortable, and all of those words suggest passivity. But every single thing that he did, it was a choice that he made. He and his DP, or he and um, Aaron Covington, who he wrote the script with, or he and Michael B. Jordan, who is just you know his on-camera muse, like. This is serious directing. Yeah. And it's so wonderful to see because there's there's showiness there. Like you mentioned the, the one take, but but every other frame is just as important and just as considered. Um, I, I, I could. Okay, let's talk about the boxing part of it because I got to tell you something. <laughs> I do not understand from boxing. Okay. Okay. You're more of a UFC not, guy. I, I am not a yeah, exactly. I, if you can't use the legs, I'm not interested. Yeah, I, I feel that way. If you can't all. trace it back to the Gracie family, it's not real. <laughs> That's right. It never happened. If Tony Bourdain's wife isn't doing it on Twitter right now, I'm out. Um, I don't understand boxing. I've never seen the appeal. I don't really like it. I guess I like the personalities. Like mm-hmm. I, I've understood that part of it, but I don't understand why. I don't. I don't like watching people beat each other up. Sure. I feel like Brian maybe, Dawkins now. You like him? <laughs> sure. If you're wearing pads in the number twenty, and your nickname is Weapon X, and it's two thousand four, yeah, we'll talk. Um, but sometimes, but I, I guess I think that maybe boxing was invented not to be like you know the sport of champions, but maybe for movies mm-hmm. because it is and writers, so, yeah, like it's it's a very like poetic, yeah. Everything about it was is is cinematic, including the potential backstories behind all of it, and. Creating this, you know, playing with that template was what most impressed me about the movie. I mean, we could go into every other detail. I, I mean, Stallone was terrific in this movie. Stallone's going to mess around and win an Oscar for this. You think so? There's, there's no question. And that is kind of frustrating because a lot of other people created this for him from something that he had left behind. And he, and he, and he by all accounts, like I was reading the interview with uh, Mike Fleming on Deadline with Kugler, and he was just like going through the process of like how hard it was to convinced Stallone, you know, about a lot of things, but, you know, one of them being like whether Michael B. Jordan was going to be ready for the physical demands of the role. Yes. And the other was just obviously like you have to turn over the keys here. I mean, this is this is taking a a film that he's made six of these movies. It's the defining role of his career. And you're basically signing up to be Burgess Meredith in this movie. You know? Yes. And they did a clearly they did a very delicate dance because they gave him a lot to do. They gave him his own heroic arc. They gave him his own battles. Um they let him keep his glasses. That was the one thing that they couldn't strip from him. Like they, like Sloan really gave it. Like he did not act physically like he was still virile and could take anyone on in the ring. Yeah. He, yeah, he yeah. allowed himself to play the older part, which was a really nice touch. But those glasses, you are not telling me that a man that wears those work mittens <laughs> literally seven days a week is it's wearing also... those, like, those golden Warby Parker. You know? like that is... If that light door to shell. If he doesn't know what the cloud is, you know what I'm saying? Like, he does not know, like, how to go to guilt.com or whatever and get a good deal on those. That is not the case. That's a really, really good point. But I, I, will, let the, I will let that pass. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say about this movie is I was really, I mean, it's a really moving and stirring film. And I feel like that's pretty impressive considering the fact that every review of this that I've read, including by A.O. Scott in the New York Times, was just like, once the theme starts, you will be weeping with every other grown man in the theater. <laughs> Let me just give a little personal anecdote. I saw this film this morning at 10 a.m. on a Monday. At the, ho- the house that worst, Bedbugs built at the Pavilion. <laughs> America's worst movie theater for a decade running, the Park Slope Pavilion. All right? Let me tell you why my ticket costs $9. Because these dudes don't turn on the heat. I was wearing my full coat and my work mittens. I was warming myself with sacks of onions. I just happened to be lying there. Sacks of onions? Well, I just, I'm just, just I'm continuing with the Rocky Balboa restaurant. Oh, I thought maybe you were just coming from the farmer's market. You were about to make yeah, a, it's, it's a frittata Monday, or something. My Monday mornings ever since Grandland ended have just been divine. Um, I'm, I'm just cooking my way through it, the Jerusalem cookbook. I wanted to tell you, do you have plenty, by the way? There's some delicious vegetable recipes in there. Odalengi for life. Um, I was... The only there were two of us in that theater, and it was a big theater. Who was the other dude? <laughs> was, uh, he, was he in your onion bag? <laughs> I think it was Burgess Meredith. Um, <laughs> he was feeling left out. Like there was no, there was no like collective. What I'm saying is, I have no connection to the Rocky movies. I saw the first one, 
seen the training montage in the fourth one. That's okay. pretty much my connection to these movies. Yeah. I can say the words Clubber Lang. That's it. You know that um, if he dies, he dies is from four. You know, but I don't, I've heard it. From Pusha T? Yeah. I've never heard that theorem tested. <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen it like, it seems definitive, but what do we really know? That's what the, um, the whole Justin Theroux arc is about on Leftovers. <laughs> that's a really good point. Um, I'm just saying that like, there was none of this like, collective nostalgia to yeah. this movie. I didn't get swept up in that. Yeah. And what I wanted to say was we have talked about it. We talk about a lot of things on this podcast in its previous iteration. And certainly one of them was the how we've been disappointed in the past when really talented young filmmakers have been sucked up into the franchise machine and basically been tasked to recreate past things like what happened to Colin Trevorrow into Jurassic World and into the new Star Wars. Um, what happened to Michael B. Jordan. Someone Michael B. Jordan definitely deleted from his contacts list. <laughs> Ryan Trank, the director of Fantastic Four. Josh Trank. Josh Trank. Um, someone clearly I deleted from the contact list of my memory. <laughs> well, you had him listed under Ryan. That was probably really weird. <laughs> it's it probably the only callback he's been getting in late fourth, fourth Q 2015. Um, but here's the one, here is the flip side to this that was really impressive. It's not just that Kugler and Aaron Covington found a way in to rejuvenate a franchise. What they did was they found a way to get the keys to the sports car and take it on a completely different road. Yeah. And, you know, we in the writing that I did last year and the, the conversations we've had, and certainly it's, there's a lot of conversation about this on the Internet sphere about the need for more diversity in films and the more diversity in storytelling. I was deeply, deeply moved at a chance to see this type of story filled with with faces that are not the same faces. Yeah, they were filled with young black actors. And um, I think that, you know, there were there were certain there were some Latino characters on the margins as well. But like. This was a romance. It was a boxing movie. It was full of, we could call them tropes, we could call them cliches, or we could call them myths. And I've never seen them told this way before. Yeah. And it was really moving and exciting because we've seen all these other stories, man. So let's see this one. Yeah, and you know what? I thought that uh, the the thing that this movie had that so many Hollywood movies lack right now, like when I say Hollywood movies, I mean, I think a, a lot of this has to do with the fact that so many movies are about uh, superheroes right now or people who want to be superheroes. Um was that this movie was about people who know that the only way that they're going to be happy in life is if they do do the thing that that is what their true love is. And there's a lot of people in this movie who are doing things against their probably best interests because they love to do them, whether it's playing music or boxing or training someone or like, you know, leaving behind comfort for a life of the unknown or whatever. And I know that that's kind of like an easy, like kind of the cliched theme to put on top of it, but it, you felt it. You felt every one of these characters fighting against everything to do what they love in the world or do what they felt like they needed to do. And it was just an incredibly, there's, there's tons of cliched moments. There's tons of moments where I'm like, what? Like, but there's, it's basically an incredibly moving story. I thought Tessa Thompson was yes. awesome in this movie in a role that is so thankless in most 99% of the movies like this would be like, uh, it's his girlfriend, you know, or this is his girlfriend who's telling him not to fight. But the fact that she was just like, you have to do what you have to do. And I have to do what I have to do because that's what being alive is about. And she's such a vibrant character. The, her issues are not like tacked on from some, like, let's take something from column A and something from column B. It's just. These are real people. They felt real. And, and, and you know, it's funny, A.O. Scott talking about the theme song. Um, I texted you about this yesterday. The, the scene was going to make you want to throw a brick through your own face. And I was texting with Zach Barron, our buddy from Philly. Like, the scene where Michael B. Jordan runs up the street surrounded by ATVs and motorcycles while Meek Mill plays mm -hmm. is about as hype as I have ever been in my life. <laughs> and then yeah. they just go around in circles around him and he's just like screaming at Rocky because he's so hyped. It is so awesome. It, like that's my Rocky theme. Meek Mill is my, is my dun, 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 dun. I agree with you. I, I'm really happy you said that about Tessa Thompson because the camera and the movie treated her with such dignity. And when you, the female characters in movies like this are so often not treated that way that it was shocking. Yeah. It was shocking the way the camera was on her side of the door, too, when they were fighting. Yeah. These little steps to, to make characters whole. Um, and also the fact that another thing that I appreciated, in contrast to a superhero movie where every movie is saving the world and then you get fatigued by that, so then you just basically, as we were discussing earlier, just have to start punching each other. This was a movie about young people achieving. Yeah. And the movie did not feel 
like the end of anyone's life. It felt like the beginning of someone's life. Absolutely. And, and, and that's reflected in a decision that's made at the very end that we don't need to talk about because in case people haven't seen it. Um, but just in general, it, it was alive in the way that people, you know, can be in their 20s and late 20s and with a relationship with the older characters and the way that Stallone, the, the way that Rocky is treated also with dignity and that he has to suffer a little bit because that's what old people do t- do for their children. Yeah. You know, even he, well, the, the entire theme but, of the movie in a lot of ways is about letting go of that kind of thing. You know what I mean? For yeah. his, his character, it's about like letting go of being the star. A couple, now we loved it. So just a couple, a couple, a couple little nits that I thought would be fun to pick out a little bit. One is you and I, you know, we've been, we've been retired from the daily sports writing grind for, you know, fours <laughs> of weeks now, but I gotta say the hot take game on the sudden emergence of the greatest champion of all time, son, and being thrust onto the biggest championship stage within weeks of winning, like within weeks of being a underground cantina fighter in Tijuana. <laughs> and getting rejected by Wood Harris. <laughs> I'm just saying there would have been a, probably a couple feature stories or a couple requests. You know what I mean? Like he probably would have been on a podcast. Yeah. yeah. Like, there would have been some media presence. Sure. Right. Well, I think that, that, that I was, I was happy to have like a very okay. limited internet element to it. Me too. Um, I, I thought that. Uh, what did you think of the the character of Pretty Ricky Conlon? <laughs> I, you know, you're a big Liverpool supporter. You're a fan of that. The funniest people. shot on the low of this entire movie. So the the final fight, fight without giving anything about what happens away is set at Goodison Park, which is Everton Stadium, and Everton Liverpool are yeah. inner city inter city uh, rivals. Uh, is there's a pullback shot and it's like about the whole crowd and there's just some jamoke with a <laughs> with a Liverpool scarf being like yeah. ah I'm in I'm in Goodison with a <laughs> or, or he's like I am walking alone <laughs> I am I, actually the, 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 the you know what we've talked about before like when films or movies just step out of their lane a little too far and like my favorite example of that was any time on The Sopranos when we would follow Dr Melfi home and it would be like a cautionary tale of when NPR becomes sentient, you know, and it's just like <laughs> David Chase could talk to these people, like demonstrate these people. But as soon as he started having people like in this upper middle class in, in, intelligentsia have conversations, it was like 18 Terry Grosses sitting around a dinner, <laughs> a dinner table. This movie is so real and full of Johns and, and Philly and the entire extended Rough Riders label family. And then it cuts to one scene with Ricky and his manager and they are in a hunting lodge, basically out of Tom Jones. They're having a conversation about his future in front of a crackling fire while foxhounds are running around on the moor behind them. I, I love that guy's that guy's Merseyside, uh, like, Scouse accent was great, though. That was great. Hey, I don't last, want this to be my legacy. Last, last, <laughs> please do it again. I can't. Last thing. I was That's just my Wayne Rooney. Like, when, Fel- when Felicia Rashad is, is in the movie, um, she apparently had in her writer that she could not travel across country to film she could not leave the living room (laughs) she could not leave the heavily marbled living room that her character was trapped in no that's not true she does the juvie scene yeah but i just wanted to ask you like she seemed like a pretty busy lady with a lot of like art collecting and like like rare marbles to collect for her home do you think she just has PTI on in the background while she's having her That's morning a pre-show? Dope question. That is the most important question: is why was Felicia Rashad watching PTI? <laughs> like, did someone else leave the TV on? And what has PTI ever been like? How do you feel about this guy cheating on his wife twenty years ago? <laughs> I know. When is that ever a topic? It's like the number one topic on PTI is whether Carl what Weathers if, was in <laughs> infidelity. What if Kornheiser and Wilbon, whom I think we both could say like we love, I love that show, you know, I love I love what they talk about. But what if like this was the one time when finally, after ten years, fifteen years of making the show, they busted out the Kanye West all day at the Brit Awards flamethrower. It's <laughs> just like, we're jumping in. We're talking about public morals finally. It just laid waste. Uh, all right, man. So obviously two big thumbs up from uh, old Siskel and Ebert here. Um Really, I, I just it's it's just such an enjoyable movie. It's obviously there's there's going to be a ceiling on on what a movie like this maybe means twenty years from now. But you know what? I think that people are going to be watching this movie for a lot longer than than a lot of movies that came out this year. You know, I think that this is going to mean a lot to a lot of people. I think so too. Uh, let's talk a little bit about last night's leftovers. Yeah, let's talk TV. Um, very interesting interview with our boy Damon Lindelof today in Variety. 
uh, I'm not sure how I want to get into this, but like, I guess the last night's episode was largely about Meg, who is now become the big bad of this season, sort mm-hmm. of in episode nine. So um, part of me was kind of wondering whether or not uh, I'll start with this question. Was last night the beginning of the end of the leftovers or the beginning of the beginning in the sense that is Meg's reappearance in the show and the fact that we only have one episode left in this season does that suggest to you that there is a third season in which the two sort of sides of this world are actually going to clash um i think there's wide open road at this point i think the show has proven what it can do and it's converted me and many others i think to to its cause and i think that this episode was really impressive just again from a like pull back from what was going on and just think about it in terms of bricklaying mm-hmm. and uh, pacing and you know basically story mining because I am not let's just break a little news here in this podcast I've never been a big live head really not a not a big fan I liked I like the Aerosmith videos what about Empire did. Records it's okay I don't I, I've just never really liked her as a performer I what has Liv Tyler been in besides that? Let me look up some Liv Tyler stats. Are you, are you, you Googling keep, while we're recording? You keep podcast? riffing. I'm going to look up her IMDb. <laughs> it's just rude. It's like when you're at dinner, you know, and no, someone starts checking their I'm Facebook. Trying to, I'm ha- trying to help us both. Okay. Um, my point being, never really... A- she was in Armageddon and Lord of the Rings. She was in Armageddon. She had an animal cracker in her, in her <laughs> goddamn belly button in that movie. She deserved, she deserved an Oscar and a Razzie for that. Um, she was in yeah, that she, thing you do? She was in yeah. One Night at McCool's? I can't wait for one more night at McCool's. And she was in Inventing the Abbots. That's what I was trying to remember. Um, I just don't, I've never liked her that much as a performer. And of all the things that I was happy to see left in the ashes of season one, honestly, her character was one of them. Not just because of her performance, but because it felt like kind of a dead-end character that didn't really work. And one of the things that could have easily have been shed. And the Guilty Remnant in general, I was pretty happy to move on from. Similarly, not the biggest fan of Tommy. Yeah. You know, of, of, of you know, a premium cable Chris Pratt has his charms, but he's not my favorite dude or my favorite performer. And so if you were going to tell me that you could mine both those characters for an episode that was still pretty compelling and loop it back to what we've been enjoying, that's just well done. Yeah. And the way that they gave her that flashback, that extra story that we didn't know that we could have used last year, again, was impressive. And again, it's not. Let me just say one more thing about that. It's not just that that extra scene with her mother added context that was a well-written scene there were tiny details in that about the walnuts about the way she asked can you remind me why she goes to the gr is her mother says i have something to tell you and then dies and then the next day something happens with um something happens with the 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 departure obviously the world ends and then you know later when she goes to miracle the psychic sort of says you want to know what she was going to say, but the truth of the matter is, is that you lost your mother and the next day the world didn't give a shit or whatever. He yeah, says. her mother got Farrah Fawcett. Is that actually why she's upset? I, I think I can't. That, re- I just can't remember what her motivation was to like join the Guilty Remnant in the first place. This is a good. This is a good moment to just as an aside say that I would say eighty percent of the ads I get on Twitter right now are people asking if it's okay to watch season two of The Leftovers without watching season one. Right. To which I say, follow your bliss. Yeah. I think. Well, I would totally say up fine. until last night it was. Uh, I think, but again, I think that this version of this character is more important than last season. I think that what we saw last season, and people can feel free to correct me, and they already do feel free to correct me, as they should. Uh, she was identified as someone who should be targeted, which meant that um, Amy Brenneman and her pals um, could would just, you know, basically uh, stand outside their house and freak them out until they joined, right? Yeah. And w- I don't know if it was made particularly clear why she seemed likely, other than the fact that she was unhappy and either in this marriage or about to get married. Um, and so now we know more about why she was pliable, basically, because she had a lot of clearly was unhappy before her mother died. Um, and was very unhappy after she did. Yeah. And even unhappier and still in questing, looking for some sort of. And that's a nice little tidbit that, that they throw in there where it's like, you're, you're so driven. And she's like, why am I driven? And she's just like, once you decide you, you want something yeah. like there's no, and, and that, that kind of explains her behavior within the GR. And I thought that. I like the idea that they've added this wrinkle. I mean, first of all, they the the idea that she started like a more maybe like radical faction of GR that talks is great. 
You know what I mean? I love that, like, every Liv Tyler scene is her walking up to somebody who's, like, writing on a pad, and she's just like, just go ahead and tell me. It's okay. <laughs> this, this is, this is, the, these are the, this is another example of, basically, Lindelof not directly trolling us in any way, but certainly being responsive to the criticism and even right. agreeing with it. Being like, that was a cool idea that was exhausting. And right. I don't need to do it anymore. Right. And so, I think that, I thought that those, those GR scenes were really cool. I just, I can't say that I totally understand and I don't mean this in like any kind of like I'm playing dumb just to to be annoyed about anything. I just don't really know what her problem is. Well, he, he, the thing is, is that like everyone on the show, they want answers. They want finality, right? They want something definitive to lean against. But they're saying that we need to make did. people remember and that the people in Miracle are somehow acting like they're special they're and they're special. not. They're not. Well, I, the, the idea is that the people in that town feel not just special, but they have literally been blessed by their specialness. Okay. So they are basking in all these extra benefits, whether it's money or attention, like the woman in the wedding dress. And they're not just, it's not just that they're existing in a bubble. They're higher up than they were before. Yeah. They matter more. And she, in theory, wants to drag them back down into the muck of suffering, whatever. And of course, the irony of that is that everyone is suffering all the time anyway. And one of the things that this season has done so well is play both sides of the fence in terms of the, the literal and the figurative. And and one of my favorite things about last night was the scene where she sits down with um, with with Matt Jameson and they're outside. And she's basically like, why are you all here so close? Mm -hmm. You're so close to it. And, you know, I am not a religious person, but I had a very, that was, it was a very um, powerful idea that suddenly washed over me. This idea of that, that's kind of what faith is, right? Yeah. You get as close as you possibly People can. People who go look at, at, like, you know, images of the, the Virgin Mary on, like, the side of a highway but, or whatever. Yeah. But not even just, like, you know, making the pilgrimage to Mecca to be near a place that's holy, but just living your life believing that just across the way is something better. And you will do your best here in the squalor and the muck, and you know it's worth being near. It's worth orienting yourself towards it. You know, just being around it, just enduring the slings and arrows yeah. that he was literally enduring. That was kind of a powerful image, and the show is just become so skilled at communicating those that it's almost tossed off. Um, um, but I wanted to come back to one thing. That yeah, you, sure. The way you started this was really interesting because you started it by talking about this interview that Damon did with Mo Ryan um, in Variety. And he has not done that many interviews. And he's talked to Steppenwolf twice, I think. Uh, and he's talked to Mo for this piece. And I think she's going to um, parcel it out twice this week and then some more stuff after the finale. And I'm still very much hoping to talk to him myself. But... So this, so what I'm about to say might seem counterintuitive, which is, I wish that he continued to take his own advice and let the mystery be, because certainly now, you know, one of the most interesting things about him as a figure is that he is, you know, first, I don't know if anyone else is up there with him in terms of making the showrunner this public, the public face of the show, yeah, right, and being available to talk about these things, and then he he beat a kind of a big retreat from that by quitting Twitter and not doing much press. And you can see how show. much it affected him because in that Mo Ryan interview, he references like if one person on Twitter had known that the girls had joined the GR, it would have ruined it. And I was like, no, it wouldn't. It's Twitter. It's just like, you have to you have to trust you have to go past that. Worse, I couldn't get through. I didn't read the interview. I started reading the interview, and. He was talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is a fantastic Peter Weir movie that mm -hmm. clearly influenced the season and the disappearance. Director of White And Squall. he's explaining the choices they faced in the room as to what would happen to the girls mm -hmm. and the benefit, cost benefit. Yeah, the A, B, and C of like they're dead, they're they're taken, or, or they're they've they've staged it. Well, they or they not dead. They really departed. Oh, they so departed. They 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 were taken. They were or they, or they staged taken, it. Yeah, or they staged it, and they chose option C as the most dramatically rich and interesting. And I I don't disagree with that, mm -hmm. but. I've, and I love knowing the, how these sausages are made. Like, this is kind of what my job has been. But I've really enjoyed not considering it in this season. I wish that he hadn't given even that interview until a week later when we could sort of do like a, okay, let's really get under the hood of it. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, one of the joys of this show for me this season, especially these last five or six episodes, has been the just wide-eyed wonder and confusion of embracing it and yeah. dealing with it. It's an example of a show. That's what the show is about, and that's what the experience has been like. And I didn't want it no more. I did, once I started seeing, once I saw him start referencing the movies that maybe we could appreciate to see it, I, I was out. I, I, I clicked away. I will go back and read that interview. I think Mo is a great writer, yeah. a great interviewer. But I didn't want any of that. Now I feel like it went against what the show is. I think you know I've had 
I've been up and I'm not up and down on this season. I think I'm very up, but in terms of like my emotional connection to it, I still think that I have some of the same issues that I had in the first season. What I don't have now and what I think we should highlight is that I've been thinking about this a lot in relationship to Jessica Jones and uh, Homeland, which we're going to talk about in a second. But the uh, kind of staleness that I feel like I see setting in despite the fact that we're in this brave new world of like you know there's so many shows and there's so many different platforms these shows exist on and people are watching shows in so many different ways but even when I watch you're the worst sometimes I just feel 24 on it where it's like this is just an episode of television with a five minute kicker that spins the show out a little bit and that people are like I gotta see the next one because is Gretchen depressed and it's like or I gotta see the next one because what are they gonna do with Kilgrave now but essentially, the first 40 minutes are a television show. You know what I mean? And um, I kind of, after watching the first five minutes of that television show, know exactly what's going to happen for the next 35 minutes. And then in the last five minutes, I don't know what's going to happen. And that's what compels me to click next episode. I will say that I don't really remember ever having an experience other than Leftover Season 2 where I'm like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. I have no idea what this episode is going to be about. Um, still midway through last night's episode, I was like, I'm sure we'll cut to Kevin soon, right? Like, even as we got like 25 minutes into just being Meg and Tommy. And uh, that's incredible. That's an incredible achievement. And this this is what I would love to see. I mean, I you know, it, it's not asking everybody to reinvent the wheel. But when you think about the creative power behind television right now, I would love to see more examples of people truly breaking away from the format of television. Not even serialized versus episodic, but just being like, this is just going to be an episode about Meg, you know, and then and it'll get where it's going. Or this is going to be an episode where Kevin is in is in purgatory and it'll get where it's going. The the most interesting tension for me at the moment is precisely that. Like, what can we do within this medium? And the reason TV has always been interesting to me and always and also very comfortable for me and for many others is that it is a system. You know, we, we not just because of the pilot season or whatever antiquated, um, you know, process that shows go through to survive. But TV is essentially TV at the end of the day. Right. Like with, in terms of relationships, in terms of story arcs, in terms of act outs, in terms of getting you to watch the next one and the next one and the next one. Whether you're trying to get whether it's Netflix trying to get you to do it in the next three seconds or a TV show wanting you to do it in seven days. Yeah. And it, that that's almost like the that is, in a, sense, so, in a sense, the new advertising is that so, compulsion so, to watch the next one is what people have to bake into shows instead of commercial right. breaks. Exactly. And so is television greatness. Are we going to reward it for people being the taking the format as we knew it and making the very, very best ever version of it in sure. the same way that I think Tina Fey and Robert Carlock write the best sitcom jokes I've ever heard. And Matt Weiner made the best workplace drama slash comedy I ever I've ever seen or could have imagined. Or are we going to celebrate people who use that form and crumple it up and try something completely new yeah um i think that what we're seeing the leftovers is very much a show of this moment because it is trying to break the cycle i was disappointed in doing that interview because i like that the show refused to participate in twitter not just him but the show itself wasn't built for that that you know bingy rhythm that we've come accustomed Mm -hmm. to um i spent the rest of this weekend watching um the first five episodes of transparent season two which is coming on amazon in december and the first episode is actually available today is it? Uh, at 8 o'clock, I think it goes up. Well, Transparent Season 2 is incredible so far. It is hilarious. It is agonizing to watch at times. It is everything that was good about the first season and more. But what's most impressive about it is that it is nothing I've ever seen on television or in visual storytelling before in terms of where it goes emotionally, in terms of where it goes in terms of perspective, um, and the way it follows its muse down crazy rabbit holes. Yeah. Um, I will not spoil anything, but there are some pretty fraught emotional moments that are suddenly intercut with images of a of a cabaret in, in Weimar, Germany. Why? Well, we don't really know why yet, and maybe it doesn't matter why. It's just that that unsettled me in a way that I was not prepared for, because we're not used to that kind of storytelling. And so TV can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, okay, so here's... This is, this is a useful way to look at it. Besides the structure of episodes, we've also talked before about the structure of seasons. And... Yeah. If anything, I feel like the leftovers could use two or three more episodes rather than one more. Yeah, I feel like Homeland should have ended two weeks ago. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Let, before we, I agree. And they have. Before. And when I watched this next week on Homeland, where it was like there are only three episodes left, I was like, only. Oh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and that's not even that I ha- I like this season, you but do. there's just no more story left. 
and it, I don't think there ever was that much. Like, and if there was, it's been spread too thin already. I, I agree with that. Um, before we leave leftovers, I just feel like do, I just wanted to finish like on a more um, concrete note. Um, I liked the reveal. I, I felt like we had two dramas last night at 9 p.m. on cable that were basically about um, locked rooms where they may have poisonous explosives locked in them. Yeah. And only only one of them was revealed to have teenage girls. So, you know, point to the leftovers. I, I liked it. I like when Lindelof goes to his well of, I don't want to call them tricks because that belittles them, but that's just, that was just exciting, surprising storytelling. And it also maintained one of the season's biggest themes, which is this could go either way. Mm-hmm. He, you know, uh, Kevin maybe was seeing visions of a ghost that was haunting him or he was having a psychotic break. Everything has two interpretations and the show is not going to weigh too heavily on either side. And I think that that's a tough balance, but it succeeded. Yeah. Um, Let's go to the other locked poison room, and let's talk a little Homeland for a minute. Okay. Oh, God, Homeland. So you That's were really, like, I mean, I was not disappointed in it until the last five minutes with the, like... Yeah, I, I'm not disappointed in it. This is the thing. I, I really like this version of the show, and I've enjoyed the season, and I've watched, I've kept up with it in real time. You know, I'm not writing about it, so it's, I, I could let it go. Um, it's just frustrating to me, because there are all these wonderful elements here. You know, it's it's playing with things that if we've talked about a few weeks ago that are literally ripped from the headlines that people are wondering about and concerned about and afraid of. Um, it has people like Mandy Patinkin doing incredible work. It has this beautiful, un, unfamiliar setting. You know, it's taking great use of it. Taking, taking It's making very good use of its Berlin um, uh, background. Yeah, and I think it, it, doing a good job of, like, being set in Germany, like, across yeah. the board. Yeah. The problem is, is that an entire traitorous plot point hinged on women be shopping, right? Like Allison is a bad is goes bad because she likes bags, right. and the, we find out that she's bad. Or Carrie, super genius Carrie, finds out that Allison is bad because of a screensaver. Now we made a joke about, you know, there's a cloud joke in Creed, but this is a screensaver. Yeah. In 2015, you got you got to do better. Yeah. You got to do better, and and that's one other point. The side po- plot that is essentially building to the finale here, right? Because this is going to be about uh, the the Quinn terror plot. It's all going to come crashing in on each other and itself in the last few episodes. They couldn't even come up with even a, a semi plausible reason for that to be a storyline, other than he almost died on the right pier to right. get picked up with this completely random clown car of would-be terrorists. So that that alludes to something that I think has been bothering me about this. You, you and I are huge fans of spy fiction. Um, yes. British, American, we have read books that are about tragic operations and successful operations and operations that last decades. Um, I, I know that there are bad spies out there, and when I say bad, I mean bad at their jobs. But I've never really wanted to read or watch a television show about bad spies. And that is actually not a terrible idea for a comedy. You know, like, let's make a bad, like a, spy, a show about the worst spy. Uh, the Other Mans on uh, Hulu. Right. Like that. Yeah. Pretty good. But to have Allison, Carrie, Saul, all, and also now this dude Boris or whoever, all be terrible at their jobs like is actually distracting at this point. So like the idea that they have been running a decade long mole operation inside of American intelligence and never once thought about what they would do if they got caught. Like that, that was her, like it's a good idea what she had, but why would it be a split second before the German federal police raided their house that they came up with that idea? It's a very good idea. But also if the handoff, you know, if they were, they were, they were honey potting her or whatever to, or trapping her basically. Yeah. And they said the handover was going to happen that night, which meant the information would have come out that night. She she probably could have been like, sup. You know what I mean? Like she could have sent another emoji. Yeah. Uh, before hopping on six trains to Potsdam. Yeah. It, it's this weird. It, it's tough. To, listen, like it's just like I, that, that 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 conclusion happened when I saw Carrie and and Saul talking about how how much it sucks that they've both been sleeping with people who are like tra- traitors yeah. to America. <laughs> It's a, what, a, what a coincidence. Yeah, seriously. Um, they're the two most important look, people in the CIA. Let's be sympathetic on one point. Like, it is very, very hard to make a good spy story in 2015. Um, there's a reason why 
the Americans is so good. There's a reason why, um, you know, all the Lacare adaptations are coming back into vogue. Dead drops and following people in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and, and bugging phones and hiding in closets. Like, this is a little bit more romantic. It's also a little bit more fun story-wise. To do all those things in an era when you can be like, well, I'm following her because I have a remote-controlled drone above her. And then we just follow her into the woods and we know where she is. Yeah, There's no poetry in that. There's not even that much... Um, uh, there's no anxiety. There's no stress. There's no. There's no thrill. Yeah. Right. And so we have. It's almost the the that in and of itself would make an interesting show. But this kind of can't quite be it. I mean, the first few seasons of Homeland, the first season when Carrie was just watching this guy live his life on surveillance on screens was really dis- disturbing, and uh, I think kind of insightful about yeah. the way we live our lives and the way we certainly we 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 do our international business these days. Yeah. But. This has means to an end. Just the shots of Claire Danes watching a bank of screens being like, where's she going? Like, hurry up. It's like, hurry. This isn't a video game. Like, if you're going to believe that there's been a 12-year mole hunt. I just, if I was like in German intelligence and Carrie Mathewson was like, oh, we lost him, the signal because like, it's like cell towers are scrambled. And she's like, fix it. I'd just be like, shut up. (laughs) This is your fuck up that we're trying to fix maybe you would say it in german instead of in english the way every person in german intelligence speaks out of deference beautiful Eng- yeah Madison. they all speak beautiful english um it's, it's just it's tough and i feel like you can you can get by on shoddy spycraft if you have the emotional counterweight and the best parts of homeland when it was at its best and when it's been pretty good which it has been this season have been able to get one side or the other right and it's just it bums me out that these enormous twists in the season in a season that, by the way, doesn't need twists. Like, Lakari doesn't have twists, really, does he? He just, he just No, sort of I mean, he, he has, like, operations that culminate and usually fall apart, you know, because of the world. And this, the, you know, the fact that Quinn is just hanging out with these people, like, just because he... he, he the guy's a them. samurai. Like, he could have gotten away by now. You know what I mean? One other point. One other point. Quinn, Quinn's had a pretty rough week. Like... That dude is just a few steps away from having a uh, dockside, like, appendectomy. I don't know that he could take much more of a beating. It's it's tough to imagine. It's really tough to imagine that he could. He is the true uh, Winter Soldier. <laughs> he is the Winter Soldier. Like, I would definitely get in a fight with Tony Stark to protect Peter Quinn. Yeah. All right, Andy, uh, we are going to uh, wrap things up now, and we're going to be back later in the week for a deep dive pod. We don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but we are going to be back for our second show First time we've done two shows in a week. You just gotta gotta get going. We gotta get this watch moving. Uh, you can subscribe to the watch on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher through channel. But just search for channel thirty three and subscribe to that feed. You'll get pods from me and Andy, me and Juliet. Juliet and Andy have a podcast coming this week. Top we Chef. Do. Woo! We do. Uh, Andy Greenwald podcast comes back next week, hopefully. That's the plan. Uh, and as always, listen to the Bill Simmons podcast. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Great job, Baranski. Woo! The Watch Podcast on the Channel 33 podcast feed is also brought to you by HBO because they were nice enough to give my boss his own television show that launches next spring. Thank you, HBO. Newsflash, you don't need cable or satellite to watch HBO anymore. Just download the HBO Now app and start your free one-month trial today. Today's episode is also brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor of the Bill Simmons Podcast, as well as our favorite app for purchasing tickets to sporting events, concerts, and whatever else. All you have to do is download the free SeatGeek app, use promo code BS. And you'll get a $20 off rebate for your first SeatGeek purchase. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. It's the smartest way to buy tickets. Again, download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code BS.